Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for a news bonus on criminal injustice. The goings-on at the U.S. Department of Justice over the Roger Stone sentencing. Now, I want you to know I'm sitting here on Tuesday, February 18th recording this, and it is my second attempt to talk about this. The first was a week ago on Tuesday, February 11th, uh, trying to record an episode about what was then a developing and alarming news story. The Department of Justice had decided to reverse its sentencing recommendations in the case of Roger Stone, a political operative who'd been a big ally of President Trump, who'd been convicted of crimes back in November. Let's set the stage with you here. I did, like I said, try to get something recorded, but by the end of that day on February 11th, it was obvious that that thing I recorded was already out of date. So here we are a week later, hoping to have the ground stable under us for just a minute or so, so we can get this news bonus to you in one piece and hopefully uh, still current. So here we go. All the way back to the 2016 election, Roger Stone was working for, with, on behalf of President Trump at various times in various roles. In the aftermath of that campaign and the Trump victory, Stone was one of the people who was investigated by the teams of lawyers uh, around special counsel Robert Mueller, and they found some very damning evidence. Fast forward to November of 2019, Stone has been indicted, and he is convicted in that month of, among other things, lying to Congress and witness intimidation. Those crimes uh, were serious, and he would be likely to face a prison sentence under any scenario. So now we fast forward into the new year, 2020, and it is time for prosecutors in the Justice Department to make a sentencing recommendation for Stone's sentencing. Now, this is absolutely the way every case goes. Prosecutors make a sentencing recommendation. And in Stone's case, uh, that sentencing recommendation came out to seven to nine years. Now, it's important to note that this sentence, seven to nine years, is a, number one, is a recommendation to the judge. Number two, it is not binding on the judge. Number three, the recommendation of seven to nine years uh, is exactly in line with the federal sentencing guidelines. Now, for those of you who have followed criminal justice issues for a long time, like I have, uh, you know that the federal sentencing guidelines uh, use a kind of grid system. Uh, on one axis, you've got the record of the defendant. On the other, you have information of crime, and the guidelines put you in a sort of a little cell on this grid, and it gives you, here's what the sentence should be, uh, seven to nine years or six to 12 months. Uh, these guidelines used to be mandatory, but over 10 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that it was unconstitutional for them to be mandatory, and since then they have been merely advisory. But 
they are widely followed by judges. So prosecutors often use them, even though they're not mandatory, they make recommendations that are consistent with the guidelines. And that's what happened here. The prosecutors in the case, the people closest to the case, the people who put together and tried the case, they made a recommendation of seven to nine years. Now, apparently, there had been some debate in the Department of Justice at high levels about what the appropriate sentence was. Uh, We don't know the full extent of that debate. We do know, according to reporting in the Washington Post and other places, that it did happen. But in any case, the line prosecutors, the people who tried the case, made that recommendation to the judge. Okay, that went into the court on Monday, February 10th. By the next day, Tuesday, February 11th, all hell had broken loose. What had happened? Well, two things. In the very early hours of February 11th, the president got on his Twitter feed and started to tweet about how this was grossly unfair, a recommendation of seven to nine years. Terrible, terrible, terrible. He didn't like this at all. And just hours later, the Department of Justice overruled the line prosecutors. It refiled the sentencing recommendation and recommended something much less. In fact, it, it, this new filing didn't actually recommend something, but, but implied that something uh, much less severe would be appropriate, kind of leaving the judge confused, as I'm sure any of us would be. But more important, uh, on that same day, when this happened, those four prosecutors who had tried the case and made that initial recommendation of seven to nine years, all of them resigned from the case. Now, let me explain. Three of them quit the case. They said, we cannot go forward and try this case. Uh, We resign from the case. But they remain with the Justice Department. The fourth resigned from the Justice Department altogether. So and, and, and this is the kind of thing that can happen when something terribly disturbing goes on in a case. And what was so disturbing here was the sequence of events, if nothing else. You had the president publicly denouncing the sentencing recommendation for one of his political operatives, duly convicted by a jury in federal court of lying to Congress and witness tampering, among other crimes. The president coming out and saying this, and then just hours later, the Department of Justice coming in with a new sentencing recommendation. It looked, for all intents and purposes, as if the Department of Justice itself, at the highest level, was interfering in a case for blatantly political purposes, that it was changing its recommendation in response to the president's stated wishes. Now, we don't know for sure whether that is why the change was made. Uh, Attorney General William Barr, the head of the Justice Department, and others in charge say, no, we never talked to the White House. It was not our intention to respond to the White House, to respond to the president's tweet. We just thought this sentencing recommendation was wrong. But look how it looks. And we all know that justice must not only be fair, it must also appear 
to be fair. And what I can say for sure is that the four prosecutors who gave up the case simply were convinced that they could not proceed given what had just happened. The political statements about the case from the highest level in our government, the president, and what seemed to be what looked a lot like an immediate response from the Department of Justice uh, in uh, uh, to fulfill the president's wishes. but And that is where I would have recorded the thing last week. That was what I had to say to you last week on February 11th. But as we all know by now, events moved really quickly. Um, the uh, four prosecutors having quit, the new recommendation being in the hopper before the judge, um, the president came right out and he said, thank you, Attorney General Barr, via the Twitter feed, of course. Thank you for taking control of this out-of-control case. This is very good work. Thank you very much. Well, this set up a completely untenable situation for Attorney General Barr. Uh, on the one hand, he wants to, I assume, stay on the good side of his boss, the president. On the other, he looks like he's simply doing political bidding in criminal cases. And I'm going to talk in a minute about why that is such a dire thing to see. So on Thursday of last week, let's see, that would have been the 13th of February, Barr goes on ABC. He does an interview on ABC in which he says, uh, I wish the president would stop tweeting. I can't do my job if he keeps this up uh, and make some fairly strong statements of the type that definitely would get the president's attention. And if it were any other actor, perhaps uh, would get him immediately fired. And of course, that would happen via Twitter. Well, it didn't. The president barely reacted at all. Uh, he said in a couple of different tweets, I think, uh, I haven't interfered. But, you know, if I want to, I could. I could say what I want. Uh, you know, I'm the president after all. I'm not just an ordinary citizen and I have a right to have my wishes carried out. Um, in the, about the same arc of time as Attorney General Barr uh, makes that statement, please stop tweeting, I can't do my job when you do this, uh, it makes my position untenable, he does two things beyond saying that. Uh, number one, the department announces that there will be no charges against Andrew McCabe, the former number two at the FBI who was a punching bag for President Trump over a long period of time, and he announces there will be a review of Michael Flynn's sentencing. And you may remember General Flynn, the first and rapidly fired national security advisor in Trump's administration, uh, prosecuted eventually for lying to the FBI, though that was hardly uh, the biggest blot on the record. So uh, we've got two kind of uh, uh, actions that follow Barr's statement in opposing directions, and the president hardly reacts at all. Certainly uh, in the land of Trump, his reactions were pretty muted. Now, what are we to draw from all of this? Um, why is it important to note and to react to, and there has been some strong reaction. Uh, first, uh, 1,100 uh, former Justice Department officials and prosecutors uh, signed a joint letter 
that said basically that Attorney General Barr had been wrong to do this and he must resign. And these people, some of whom were former political appointees, they came from all over the spectrum, appointed by different presidents, working in different administrations, all saying that Barr had compromised any integrity that he had, that he would always forever now be seen as simply doing Trump's political bidding in criminal cases. I mean, this is a very strong response. So what is it that's wrong with the president doing this, uh, making these comments, and then perhaps, if we're reading this right, the Justice Department responding in concert with the president's wishes? We all know in our Bones, that what makes the criminal justice system legitimate uh, to the extent that it is, is its fairness and its even-handedness and its non-political nature. Now, we know it's not completely fair. We've had so many interviews and news spots on criminal injustice about the various ways in which the system does not treat people fairly. But if you have a system where political party, where political alliance is the thing that makes the difference between, let's say, a two-year sentence and a seven-year sentence, if you have a system in which people are prosecuted or not, depending on who their political patrons are, you have fatally undermined any perception of fairness. You've created one system for the politically connected and an entirely different system for everybody else. It may not touch the day-to-day business of the criminal justice system, but man, that is a mistake of the first order. It undermines something that I think of as one of the crown jewels of our system. Not to say it always works and it's perfect. Far from it. But it is so important to the legitimacy of our system that it function without regard to politics. It raises all kinds of grave concerns. It makes political allies of the powerful effectively immune. It creates a separate system for everyone else. We just can't have that. Now, is this... Shocking. It is shocking that it could happen, but in another way, actually, it's not. Let me explain what I mean. Um, If you go back to the writings and spoken uh, uh, words of Attorney General Barr, you will find somebody who espouses a particular theory of executive power. It is called the unitary executive theory. Now, I may have talked about this before. It's pretty deep in the weeds, uh, but just bear with me for a minute. What it means is that the president is the embodiment of the executive branch. The president holds all executive power under the Constitution and can basically do anything he or she wants. Now, this isn't simply a matter of everybody serves in the cabinet at the pleasure of the president. We all know that. Uh, An executive branch official can be hired and fired by the president. It means more than that. It makes the president the ultimate authority over everything in the executive branch. Now, at the time of the founders of our country, when we really had no federal bureaucracy, when there was no administrative 
uh, or welfare state, that, was, that may have been a tenable way of looking at things. But it is simply not anymore. Um, Barr has company in this unitary executive theory. Uh, many people in the Federalist Society, notably Justice Brett Kavanaugh, has talked about it. Um, but it, it creates an executive. If fully carried out, it creates an executive, a president who is so powerful that they cannot really be checked in any effective way. There's nothing they can't get their hands on and do within the executive branch. And when we're talking about interference in criminal prosecution, that is simply too dangerous to tolerate. It cannot be Right. But it shouldn't surprise us. It is a direct outgrowth, this set of actions, is of that unitary executive theory. So where are we today, February 18th? Well, Trump has had more to say about this because he not only applauded when Attorney General Barr uh, seemed to do his bidding the way he wanted, he then went on an offensive against the judge in the case. Judge Jackson of the District of Columbia and said some blatantly false things about her. Now, as you probably know, federal judges are all confirmed by the Senate and have lifetime tenure. So judges are much more free to simply ignore uh, presidential statements of this type. And I expect that that's what Judge Jackson will do. But her fellow judges seem very alarmed about this, and I can understand why. So today, February 18th, we've got news out that uh, the Federal Judges Association, didn't really know there was such a thing, but there's apparently a professional association for federal judges, has called an emergency meeting to discuss the situation. There is apparently real concern about presidential pressure and interference in the justice system, and they may have something to say about that. So that may be yet another chapter here. And we know that the president uh, makes a practice of attacking judges when they do things he does not like. We can remember as far back as his 2016 campaign in which uh, he went ahead and attacked a judge uh, in a case in which he was personally involved. This judge uh, had a Mexican surname, and Trump, then a candidate, said, well, this judge couldn't be fair to me because, quote, he's Mexican, uh, and he knows what I think about Mexicans. Um, so he's got a history here, and that's why the judges are worried, as well as the greater, the larger structural questions. So this is a very worrying set of developments. I simply could not underplay it if I wanted to. We will keep our eyes on it for you. Uh, we'll report back to you on what sentence Stone eventually gets, what the circumstances are there, how it all plays out, and eventually, if there's any action after sentencing, We'll talk to you about that, too. That's it. That's your news bonus here on Criminal Injustice, the sentencing of Roger Stone, the DOJ reaction, and the reaction to the reaction. You can always turn to us for news about the criminal justice system. Go to our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for everything we offer there. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. 
Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.